Welcome to the Joy of Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Dr. James Taylor. On this podcast, we explore the passion and purpose of leadership, and we do so by talking with recognized leaders who do not merely have jobs, but men and women who have been called to their chosen sphere of influence. All right. Well, hey, listen, we are so glad to have uh, Mr. Kelvin Cochran with us today. Uh, and Kelvin has a, a remarkable story, and I can't wait to dig into the story. Uh, Senior Vice President of Human Resources and Faith Initiatives for one of my like heroic places, the Alliance for Defending Freedom. And uh, I think it's just full of heroes of the faith right now, really combating what our nation needs to where they need to be, need to be held accountable. And so um, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you today, James. Great. Um, tell me, tell me a little bit, I'm going to, I'm going to take you back. A lot of times I don't do this show chronological. I tend to be a little bit ADD and I pop around a little bit, but I, I love your story from, from a little bit of a chronological perspective. Yes. Take me back to, to, to where you're growing up. Um, and I love the story of kind of what got you into uh, the fire department and and really pursuing that at the highest echelons. Uh, take me a little, take me back a little bit to that to that story. Absolutely, I, I was born and raised in Shreveport, Louisiana, okay. and uh, in the early '60s. And um, at the time that I was born, I had three big brothers, and I was the fourth child. And um, my mom and dad were very poor. Uh, we were living in a government projects in Shreveport, Louisiana, in okay. one of the very poor neighborhoods there. Uh, a couple of years after I was born, uh, two sisters were added to our family. So it was okay. six of us, and our, my dad left us, left my mom. And, uh, of course, we were poor when he was with us, but things got a whole lot worse. Right. After he left, and we couldn't afford to live in the projects anymore. And so my mom moved us a few blocks over in a back alley in a shotgun house mm. in Shreveport, Louisiana. And it was that period in my life at five years old that things just began to, um, you know, just stay in my heart and in my mind. One of them was that poverty was just terrible. Mm -hmm. And uh, I knew as a five-year-old kid that I didn't want to be poor when I grew up. And uh, I realized that God didn't intend for one woman to raise six children all by herself. Mm -hmm. I saw how difficult it was right. on my mother struggling to take care of six kids with a meager job at a dry cleaner and uh, needing the assistance of welfare and food stamps to help take care of us. And things were still really, really tough. But she joined a church at the top of the alley, Galilee Baptist Church. And we began to go to church a lot when the doors were open we were there and uh god began to just reveal things to me as as a little bitty kid and um one sunday after church the at the house across the street from us miss maddie's house caught fire and when the shreveport firefighters came my brothers and sisters and i we were standing on the front porch of our shotgun house watching the shreveport firefighters and it, that was the day I was smitten by what those guys were doing. And I looked at my mom and my brothers and sisters, and I said, I want to be a fireman when I grow up. And so there were three things that really, really stood out to me as a little kid growing up in poverty in Shreveport uh, that infused my dreams. Uh, my dreams, when grownups used to ask us then, James, all the time, what do you want to be when you grow right, up? Right. And I knew my answers. My answers was, I don't want to be poor. Uh, I want a family. And what I meant by that, I want to be a husband right. and a father who doesn't leave his wife and kids. And I want to be a firefighter. And what they taught us was all of our dreams were going to come true if we believe in and have faith in God. If we go to school and get a good education. If we respected grownups and treat other people like we wanted to be treated. They said, all your dreams are going to come true. So I was raised on faith and patriotism. I love that. And and I, lo I love the fact that even at such an early age, like s such a young age, you can already have the Lord speaking into your life. Uh, you know, working with kids here at, for a living, I think so oftentimes adults tend to minimize the ability for a young pe person to hear. And we see it happen all the time, clearly oh, evidence in your life. Yes, yes. And, you know, for me, as I look back, what it really, really forced us in so many words to 
think about the future and right. to dream when the adults asked us, you know, so often, what do you want to be right. when you grow up? It did, really did, did your siblings pursue it in, in with as much vigor as well? Well, they, uh, I don't think as much. I mean, they were, they were fed the same, uh, the th- same faith and patriotism I was fed. They had the same mom, the same experiences. Uh, but they did not have, I guess, as vivid of and clear, you know, cut uh, dreams that really fed their goals like right. mine did. Right. Yeah. Right. Do you feel like the, the, the growing up in poverty, do you feel like that was a, a motivator for you? If so, did you find that there were certain things that you were pursuing or, or maybe finding the reasons to be pursuing things in a particular way? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, at the Galilee Church, for example, uh, there were families who were a lot better off than we were. So going to church on as regular of a basis as we were going, I saw kids who had a dad and a mom, and uh, their lives were clearly better. Right. Uh, they had things that we did not have. They had a car. We walked everywhere we right. went. And so there were clear distinctions between families that had moms and dads and the families that didn't. Uh, And the things that they did, the clothes that they wore, uh, the experiences they shared with us as children, we could only dream about those things. And so those things fed my dreams. And it was amazing to me how the formula that we were given, no matter where we were, whether it was, it was at church or at school or visiting a, a senior neighbor in the neighborhood, everyone said, your dreams will come true. Uh, believe in God. Get a good education. Respect grown people. Treat other people like you want to be treated. And those were the things that were just embossed in my little heart growing mm. up through the years uh, that I think has a lot to do, James, with how my life uh, is today. So take, so take me from, you know, the, the, the young Kelvin sitting on the front porch determining that's what I'm going to do. Take me on from there and tell, tell me deeper into that story. Take me deeper into that story. So of course, growing up still in, in poverty, you know, I had constant reminders <clears throat> of dreaming big, you know, if, uh, when there was a fire uh, in the neighborhood or emergency, you know, I would always, if it was close by, I was going to ride my bike over there, run over there so I can see what the firefighters were doing. That was a constant. Um, my mother was a strict disciplinarian. She uh, taught us things like we may be poor, but we're, we're going to be clean. We're mm-hmm. going to keep this house clean. It doesn't belong to us, but we're going to keep it clean. Uh, she made sure that, uh, you know, we had chores to do, that we kept our raggedy clothes, you know, neat and clean. She just instilled certain disciplines and behaviors in us uh, that she felt was essential and that being poor was not an excuse for certain things. Well, in the seventh grade, uh, I had a teacher, Miss Mabel Cutliffe, who required her seventh graders to research two careers. Uh, of course, one of mine was firefighter, and another career I discovered was uh, architecture. I just mm. loved buildings and the building designs, and so I wanted to find out about architects. Mm. And so I turned in my report on architecture and firefighter, and uh, when I reached high school, the high school counselor asked, you know, what are you going to college for? It immediately dawned on me my seventh grade report. Firefighters didn't require college education but architects did so the way she framed the question my response was I'm going to college to be an architect so she laid out for me four years of courses that I would need to take to be a successful architecture student and uh, I took the beginning of high school at the beginning of high school I love that wow yeah yeah she was an amazing (laughs) amazing counselor and uh, uh, Miss Velma Hudson was the ninth grade counselor and I took all her advice except for the math classes. So I waited all the way through high school, taking the minimum level of math. And when I reached college at Louisiana Tech University, uh, at the end of the first year, my grades were suffering because of the math classes. Okay. It's not doing good. And then the next fall, the next fall quarter, uh, I was out on academic suspension because of the math okay. cl- classes. But here's where the hand of God came in. When I went home, heartbroken, had to tell my mother that I wasn't going to be able to go back to college the next quarter. 
She said to me, well, you're not just going to lay around here. You need to find a job. <laughs> and so uh, it dawned on me I need to pursue my first love, and I put in an application for the fire department. Fantastic. And, uh, and I got hired on the Shreveport Fire Department. And then you climbed up there pretty quickly, right? Yeah, the favor of God was on my life. It was challenging because I was one of the first African-Americans on the Shreveport Fire Department. And in those days, it was difficult because uh, – there was outward resistance right. from the city uh, to hire black firefighters and female firefighters. And so uh, coming in as that early group of initial African-Americans, mm -hmm. it was difficult. Racism, racial slurs, practical jokes that would just break your heart to hear about. But I was faithful and focused. I remember what I was taught as a little kid you got to have faith in God. Mm -hmm. you got to respect the authority of the Shreveport Fire Department. you got to treat the other firefighters like you want to be treated, no matter how they treat you. And you got to educate yourself on the job. That was my focus, James. And because of uh, I never lost focus, the favor of God was on my career. In four years, I became a captain. It usually takes 12 to 15 years. In 10 years, I was an assistant chief. It usually takes about 22 to 24 years. With 18 years on the department, I became the fire chief of mm. the Shreveport Fire Department, the youngest ever, and the first African-American. Wow. And uh, every step along the way on those promotions, <clears throat> there were challenges along the way. It was not like a cakewalk, because when you're one of the first African-Americans in a predominantly white male institution like the fire service, you're not your promotions are not celebrated along the way. But that never discouraged me. It never gave me a mean or hardened heart. I just stayed focused. And so uh, making it to the top had its challenges, you know, being mm -hmm. the youngest and first African-American fire chief. But um, God blessed me. We had mm -hmm. eight years of just tremendous public safety success in the department that drew the attention of the city of Atlanta. So uh, I was at the pinnacle of my career, serving as the second vice president of our international association, the, called the International Association of Fire Chiefs, moving up the ladder. And I was going to ultimately, ultimately be the president of the International Association of Fire Chiefs. But Atlanta calls and um, offers me uh, an opportunity, recruits me to come to serve as the fire chief of the city of Atlanta. Mm. So the short story is I went to Atlanta and served under one mayor, Shirley Franklin, uh, for about two years. And President Obama gets elected and uh, recruits me to come to serve uh, as the head of the United States Fire Administration mm -hmm. within the Department of Homeland Security. And so I left the city of Atlanta and went to Washington, D.C. Wow. to serve as the head of the United States Fire Administration. And I love that job. Uh, and I was there for a year. My position was never filled in the city of Atlanta. And Atlanta had elected a new mayor. Kasim Reed. Kasim Reed. Right. And Kasim Reed came to Washington, D.C. with a, many other mayors to meet with the president. But while he was there, he wanted to meet with me. And he informed me that he hadn't filled the position and that he wanted me to come back and <laughs> retake my post. And so um, but the president allowed me to resign, and I went back to serve as the fire chief of the city of Atlanta for the second time. And I served Mayor Reed in the city of Atlanta for five years. We did tremendous things with public safety and raising the fire department's insurance rating to class one, lowering mm. fire deaths uh, and historical markers um, in the city of Atlanta. But while I was serving faithfully the city of Atlanta, in my government position, I was faithfully serving God, right. you know, in my church and throughout my life. And I wrote a book for a Christian men Bible study while all of that was going on. And a year after the book was published, um, an openly gay Atlanta City Council member discovered that in the book that I had mentioned a few pages about biblical marriage and sexuality. And he was offended by that. And complained to the Honorable Mayor Kasim Reed, mm -hmm. and uh, I was suspended for 30 days to determine whether my views about bi biblical marriage and sexuality ever caused me to discriminate against anyone from the LGBTQ community, even though the investigation concluded that I never 
have discriminated against anyone under any circumstances, I was terminated from my 34-year mm. fire service. Exemplary gene, career. Dream come true career. Yes, sir. Wow. And, and so, and I'm, I'm, now I've got to stay on the story here for a little bit of time. So, so when this takes place, at what point in time does Alliance for Defending Freedom step in where they hear about your story? Yeah, that's a great question because, um, you know, during the 30-day suspension, I was so confident um, that the investigation was going to conclude uh, exonerating me and I would be reinstated, uh, that I never thought I would need any legal representation. There were many law firms reaching out to me, uh, uh, offering their services for support, but I would turn them down because I said, I'm, I'm, thank you, but no thank you. Uh, I'm not going to need any legal services. Well, near the end of the 30-day suspension, uh, there was a uh, pastor, uh, Bishop Garland Hunt, who was a, also an attorney mm. who knew about Alliance Defending Freedom. And he introduced me to an allied attorney of Alliance Defending Freedom, a, a lawyer by the name of Jonathan Cromley. And so out of respect for Bishop Hunt, a pastor, uh, I decided I would meet with him and uh, Jonathan Cromley. And they introduced me to Alliance Defending Freedom. And, uh, and share it with me, the, their ministry of legal services and what they do. And I was saying to those guys, hey, thank you guys, but I'm not going to need it. You know, I go back to work next week. The suspension is over. Right, and I, right. I'm going to be reinstated. And you're fr- probably fairly close with Kasim Reed. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he was like to me, we had a very formal professional relationship, mm-hmm. but I, I loved him like he was a little brother, to be right. quite honest with you. I respected him highly. He was just such a great uh, leader for the city, mm-hmm. you know, in so many areas right. that I right. just never thought something like this could come from him. Uh, so we, I, I would consider that we, we were close. I, I loved him like a little brother. Mm. But the, the attorney, uh, Jonathan Cromley and Bishop Hunt, said, hey, uh, it would be just great for you to have a plan B. And I said, well, you know, if, if I'm not reinstated, I'll give you guys a call back. We'll go down this legal path with Alliance Defending Freedom. And so the next week I went back, and uh, sure enough, they reported that the investigation found no evidence of discrimination. However, uh, I was going to be terminated anyway because of the challenges that the, the whole issue caused for the mayor. And so I was terminated on the spot without any recourse. And and was there was there primary argument in regard to this the fact that you took this stance or that the book had been given out? Uh, is it just the stance that was the answer or was it just sheer politics? Yeah, well, let me put it this way. So and I got I, I'm thinking about not giving too long of answers, but I think put put in the title of the book the context of the book is, is appropriate. So the book was written for Christian men. Okay. Uh, the title of it is uh, Who Told You That You Were Naked? Now, <laughs> now, many people who don't connect the title to Genesis chapter 3, right. verse 11 would probably say, well, that's why you got fired. <laughs> but no, uh, that's what God asked Adam in the right. Garden of Eden. Right. So it was a book written for Christian men who struggle with condemnation, which is all of us, right? Right. And uh, But a few pages in the book, I dealt with some of the most prevailing sexual sins that Christian men still struggle mm-hmm. with today, Absolutely. and sex is one of them. Right. And so uh, in explaining why God created sex and that he created them male and female, and the two shall become one and one flesh and, you know, leave the father and mother and clean, you know, the whole mm-hmm. biblical mm-hmm. story of sex and sexuality and marriage. And so that's what offended that topic Biblical marriage, biblical sexuality in our current cultural context uh, is fighting words in the marketplace. And Christians today, James, uh, place themselves in an occupational risk if they publicly declare what the Bible says about marriage and about sexuality and they're willing to take a stand on it. Uh, it really today is an occupational hazard for believers. And it's just crazy that, you know, it, it's amazing to me how quickly this has changed. 
Yes. You know, that we're, we're watching just in the last few years, uh, the idea of gender fluidity would not have even been something that would have been discussed just three, four, five years ago. Yes. And now that is a major point of contention, something that, that really is being driven by society at large. I mean, it's so intriguing to see how quickly this has happened. Yes, sir. You know, so it's just, just absolutely fascinating. I, I'm intrigued. It's like there's this theme that has run through your life that I, I as I was doing prep for the, for the show today, um, it's like this idea of doing the right thing no matter what, even when it's hard. Yes, that, sir. that you see, like, I love how you worded it at the beginning to say you were given this idea of this formula, mm-hmm. you know, yes. uh, do the right thing, you know, love people around you, be kind to folks around you, get an education, mm-hmm. work hard. Uh, this idea of a formula, it, 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 feel, it feels so much like uh, that whole path was God preparing you for this, for this battle that you were going to fight on the side of right. Yes, I mean, you nailed it. That's how I see it, that the day that I was terminated, um, you know how some people say, some people that have a near-death experience uh, would say, my life flashed before my eyes. Mm-hmm. Well, being fired is not close to a near-death experience, but I did have the experience of my life flashing before my eyes. And what God did for me, James, was he took me back from my earliest childhood years, as far as I can remember, and just kind of walked me through the different ages and stages of my life to show me how his hand was on my life in all those ages and stages and how he used all of those experiences to prepare me for what I was about to go through. That's exactly Isn't it amazing to look at, like to, to really be able to look back in hindsight and just to see how the Lord so clearly orchestrates our path. Yes. You know, yes. Uh, that it's for his good, it's for his glory, but your foundation was so firmly prepared. Yes, you know. Sir. Now, now I know that you had a family and, and a bunch of kids during this period of time as well. Where Where is your family as, as this kind of peace is taking place? How, yeah, so, you know, and, and part of that reflection back over the years, uh, God showed me that he had even prepared my family mm. for what we were about to go through. And uh, I was reminded of when I first became a firefighter, I was very popular with girls, and that was something that was new to me. <laughs> and uh, so I was in this period, James, where I was dating like crazy for about six months. Okay. You know, having that firefighter uniform just attracted girls yeah, like a yeah. supernatural magnet. <laughs> and I was taking advantage of it. <laughs> and so God woke me up one morning and said, this is not the life I called you to live. You need to find a wife. And so my plan was that I had to find a wife quick. And to do it quick, I needed to uh, think back over the my life up to that point of the girls that I liked or admired the most and if I thought of one that started my heart to beating and singing, that would be my cue that that's the one that God like that. <laughs> wanted me to marry. Okay. So I thought about the girls I admired in college. Nothing happened. High school, nothing happened. Middle school, nothing happened. And I started going through my uh, elementary school years. And in the fourth grade, I had this puppy love for a girl by the name of Carolyn Marshall. And when I thought about Carolyn Marshall, my heart started beating and singing. No way. So I said, she must be the one that God wants me to marry. So the next thing is, how am I going to find Carolyn Marshall? <laughs> you had not kept in touch with her. No, no, no. So, <laughs> Calvin, I love, I love that. <laughs> so we didn't have Facebook back in those days, but we had something called a telephone book. And so I had a first name and a last name. So I picked up the Shreveport telephone book and went to the Marshall section. And I started at the top with the top name and I called the number and I said, my name is Kelvin Cochran. I'm trying to find the girlfriend I had in the fourth grade. Her name is Carolyn Marshall. Does she live here? They said, no. I said, well, do you know anybody by that name? They said, no. So I checked that number off and went to the next one and person answered the phone. I said, my name is Kelvin Cochran. I'm trying to find the girlfriend I had in the fourth grade. Her name is Carolyn Marshall. Does she live here? They said, no. I said, well, do you know anybody by that name? They said, no. I went through the whole list, James. And no. Nobody said I thought for sure you were going to tell me like her dad's name was Zachary or something. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody said that they knew her or she lived there. But I wasn't discouraged. Since she grew up in Allendale like I did, I would get out from the fire station and drive through the neighborhood hoping that one day I'd run into her or run into somebody that grew up with us. And they'd say, oh, Carolyn lives around the corner. That didn't happen. 
So after about two months, I was just miserable, wondering how in the world am I going to find her. I was just convicted she had to be the one. I can't like that is amazing. <laughs> and so God said, check the phone list again. So I looked in the phone book and saw why I skipped one of the numbers. And so I was discouraged. My enthusiasm was gone. I went ahead and called the number. And a person answered the phone, and I said, my name is Kelvin Cochran. I'm trying to find a girlfriend I had in the fourth grade. Her name is Carolyn Marshall. Does she live here? And the voice said, this is she. And I got excited all over again. I said, <laughs> Carolyn, this is Kelvin. You remember me? She said, yeah, I remember you. I said, Carolyn, I'm a firefighter now. I have a good job with good benefits. I've been dating like crazy for the last six months. God woke me up and told me I needed to find a wife, and you are the chosen one. You're serious, that conversation? <laughs> yeah. I need to hang out with you. Like, this is great. I love that. <laughs> and she said, you must be crazy. I said, no, I'm not crazy. Can I come over and talk to you about it? She says, no, you can't come over here. I have a boyfriend, and he's coming over tonight. I said, Carolyn, you got to let me come over. God said, you're going to be my wife. We're going to have a wonderful life. We'll have beautiful children in a nice home. You'll never want for anything. And I was barely making above minimum wage. <laughs> And so I guess her boyfriend at the time never whispered those sweet nothings in her ear because the next thing she said was, he'll be at work tomorrow night. And so I said, can I come over tomorrow night? And she said, yes. So the next night I went over, it was cold January night. She was still living with her mom in the projects. She made me a cup of hot chocolate, came back to the kitchen table, and I knelt down on one knee and said, Carolyn, would you marry me? And the first next time, day, like first just time, coming over. Yeah. Unbelievable. Next thing she said was, Mama, you got to come in here. So she called her mama in and she said, this is Kelvin. And she, I, said, I hadn't seen this boy in years. We were in the fourth grade together. And I talked to him last night and let him come over the night. And he just uh, asked me to marry him. So I explained to her mom I wasn't crazy. <laughs> asked for her daughter's hand in marriage. And uh, six months later, we got married. And last summer, we celebrated 40 years of holy matrimony. <laughs> Praise God. That is unbelievable. Like that, that has got to be the best story yeah. I have ever heard about somebody asking to marry. That is just fantastic. But here's where the preparation comes in. And uh, all bachelors beware. When you skip dating and courtship and you start off with engagement and get married within six, six months, you're going to have some sufferings along the way sure. in your relationship. Right. But when your marriage is rooted in Christ, that's right. Christ used the sufferings in developing our families to build up and strengthen our families for facing a fiery trial like being terminated right. from your childhood right. dream come right. true job. You'd be locked in step because right. of Christ. Right. And not only was my wife strong enough to handle it, my young adult children, they went through their challenges mm -hmm. with their friends and mm -hmm. their employers mm -hmm. because their dad was this public guy you know, who was fired for what he believed about marriage and sexuality, and God strengthened them and our entire family to endure the fiery trial. Wow. And it's just, it, I love it. I mean, it really is that theme of just doing the right thing no matter what. Now, I've got to say, just because I'm, I'm like this curious person who's always, I want to be in the conversation when Carolyn has to tell her boyfriend <laughs> <laughs> that there's a guy who I just met, by the way, we're getting married. Like that, That's the conversation I want to be in. Yeah. That, that would be a riot. And how many kids do you all have? We have three. Three yeah, kids. That three is great. Kids. My wife and I, we're coming up on 30 years this year, so you okay. have us by 10. Okay, So great. that is just great. And just to be in lockstep for it. Okay, so now now I, I needed to know that part of it. I didn't know it was such a great story. That's going to be it's gonna, that's gonna be a story I'm going to repeat so many times. I'm like, <laughs> like a collector of stories. So, um, But now take me back to, to the actual, now you're, the firing has taken place. Plan B is now going to be enacted with ADF. Take, take me back to that spot. You've got a supportive wife. You've got kids who are learning from this experience. God has clearly paved your, your foundation to be prepared for doing the right thing no matter what, even yes. when it was hard. And so now jump me into that, into that setting. And because it became a huge case. I mean, yeah. it became something that was known nationally. Yes, sir. It was broadcast all over the national news for, for a few weeks uh, but then comes along this Christian law firm, Alliance Defending Freedom. Um, I love it that ADF does not refer to itself predominantly as a law firm, right. but a Christian ministry and uh, who has sons and daughters of God who practice law. Uh, they know the word of God and they know the law and they live it out right. every day in the right. ministry. 
And so um, the first question I had with for them is, well, how much is this going to cost me? And they uh, said, absolutely nothing. We have ministry friends that believe in what we do uh, and standing for people who stand for biblical truth, and it's not going to cost you mm. anything. So we began this journey of uh, filing the appropriate um, following the appropriate procedures for filing, you know, the the cases. And uh, it was a four-year legal journey. And um, um, the toughest part um, was the waiting. Uh, I knew from the very outset that uh, the hand of God was in it and that I was going to be vindicated uh, not just because Alliance Defending Freedom was was standing in the gap on God's behalf, but James, there are so many um, exceeding great and precious promises of God in the in the Bible uh, that affirms that I was going to be victorious. And you know, there are so many stories in the Bible that God had sown deeply into my heart that rose up in that moment. That gave me the confidence that I was going to be vindicated. Uh, one of my favorite stories of many of them uh, are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the stand that they took against right. Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel, uh, their colleague who took a stand against a government law not to pray and was willing to face the consequences. Right. And uh, those stories resonate with me because those guys were government employees and sure. I was a government employee. Isn't that interesting? And so oh. God said to me, if you want to see what I'm going to do, you look at what I did for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and what I did for Daniel. And I'm the same God, the same God of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. You know what I love about that passage me. of Scripture, yeah. too? Like, one of my favorite things is that when Daniel knows he's in trouble, he, yes. he knows that they're out to get him. And it says that he, he goes to his house, he goes to his upper room, and he opens the windows. Yes. And and, and I've always, like, you know, the, every time I'm going through Scripture and reading Scripture, I'm always kind of making a movie in my head. But I think here he's on the second floor. He's praying with the windows open, which means that you have these people who are out to get him, and they must be on the roof of the building next door. You right, know, yeah. that they are eager to. But what I love is that it would have been so easy for Daniel to go back to his house and to pray and to not open the windows. Yes, like mm-hmm. it would have been easy for him to still pray, but to but to not be bold in his pursuit of what is right. Right, and instead he opens the windows. Yeah, and I like that simple act. He knew where it was going to go. Mm-hmm. He knew that that his accusers were either on the roof next door or somewhere with a clear view of him, right? He knew it, and yet he still pursued it. He still walked into what was right. Yes. Uh, he was still, he didn't just exercise his faith, he exercised it with boldness. Yes. And that's really what, you step right in with that same model. Yes, yeah. And, you know, just studying those stories and hearing those sermons and vacation Bible school and Sunday school lessons through the years, uh, was my opportunity to put it into practice. It was kind of like, um, you know, how dare you shrink back when you have this mm. moment? I've discovered that when God, uh, first of all, James, that God always prepares his sons and daughters for those fiery trials. He never gives us a pop quiz when it comes to those kinds of tests. Mm-hmm. He always prepares us. So I would encourage anyone listening to know that when your day of temptation comes, when your faith is put on trial, when you, when you have to decide, am I going to take a stand or am I going to, uh, like Daniel in the story of Daniel, am I going to keep the windows closed mm-hmm. or am, am I going to open the windows right. and, and continue to walk this walk of faith boldly before God? All of us are going to face that test one day. So when the test comes, the first thing I've realized and I feel obligated to share, you got to know that God has prepared me for this test. That's right. The second thing that I've discovered is the test is to to decide between one of two things. First of all, there are worldly consequences for standing on biblical truth and standing for Christ. That's right. But the other side is there are kingdom consequences for standing on biblical truth and standing for Christ. And the kingdom consequences are always greater than the worldly consequences. So we've got to decide as sons and daughters of God, Am I going to yield to the fear of the worldly consequences Mm -hmm. if I stand on biblical truth? Or am I going to stand on the faith 
and the kingdom consequences that God has promised. That's right. That's the test. That's right. And and really, in our in our society, we need more men and women who who aren't just going to kowtow to the pressures around them, but they're also not going to go up to the room and keep the windows shut. Say, well, hey, I still prayed. Yeah. I still did my thing. Right. You know. But we need men and women who are going to be bold, and not in an angry way, not in a hostile way. Uh, I think sometimes people are so nervous to practice their faith because they think somehow everyone is going to be against them. The truth of the matter is if we present it in a a, a godly and kind and loving fashion, in most situations, people are actually fairly receptive to that. But in some situations, they won't be, and you better be prepared. And, and better you know, be to stand for what's right. For it. Absolutely right. You know, and uh, it, it's just so true that uh, all things work together for good mm-hmm. to them that love God. That's right. And God is going to, God uses, I, I, my experience taught me that with all the public attention that was brought to my case, that God was putting me on public display so that he would be glorified. It had nothing to do with me. It had everything to do with God. And that when we don't embrace the moment as this is my opportunity to glorify God, we have a tendency to think about um, our personal consequences rather than thinking about glorifying God. And it's all about um, putting God on display and glorifying God. When Jesus confronted uh, Saul on the road to Damascus, Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? What we should learn from that experience, James, is that when we are persecuted for standing on biblical truth and standing for Christ, Jesus takes that personally. Personally. He says, it's it's me that's being persecuted and not you. And Jesus knows how to defend his own name. Mm -hmm. It's not our name on the line. It's Mm -hmm. Jesus's name on the line. And he has a track record of defending his name pretty well. And, and he, he's going to receive honor. What I love, too, is that he's going to give honor. I, I was in my devotion, my personal devotions over the weekend uh, in one of my favorite passages, Scripture in Acts, with the stoning of Stephen. And, you know, what, what hit me, and I was teaching in a group of guys on Friday morning, but what hit me about that passage was in that section of Scripture, Stephen looks up to heaven, he says, First of all, Father, don't hold it against them, mm-hmm. and 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 into your and basically, I'm coming with you. You know, I'm coming to you, which is the echoed the exact same sentiments that Jesus echoed on the cross. Yes. But in there, it says that he he viewed into heaven, and that it says Jesus was standing at the right hand of the Father. Right. And it's the only time in Scripture when Je- there's about four or five other references. The only time Jesus is ever standing, and I, I've always looked at that as the idea that Stephen is literally giving up his life yes. to, to, to do the right thing no matter what. Stephen's only charge was that he was taking care of widows and orphans. He was yes. in charge of the distribution of food, yes. but his real thing was that he pursued Christ. But, but there, Stephen, in, in total humility, total courage, but also total boldness, he literally gives up his life for the pursuit of the cross. But I love the fact that Jesus is standing, and that that standing is an honor that that Christ is also honoring. He's going to be your rock during that hard time, but he also recognizes that there, that he he's shoring you up and honoring what you've done as well. And yes. and uh, really, the Lord, your your case was a national case. It's got a, it got a lot of press. Uh, really probably all over the world, I would imagine. But I know that in the U.S., certainly, it was a big case. Did it provide other opportunities, other springboards for you to share the gospel and for you to have a lived-out faith because of that? If so, what what did those look like? Oh, my God, yes. I mean, you know, that book, that self-published book, Who Told You That You Were Naked, uh, it began to sell, you know, off the charts. I mean, (laughs) it just began to sell and sell and sell. It opened up so many many ministry opportunities for me to minister to men at men's conferences mm. and men's breakfasts. I was just traveling the country doing that a lot. Uh, I shared my testimony uh, at the uh, Georgia Baptist uh, Executive Board meeting um, right after I was terminated. And the executive director uh, at the time challenged all those pastors, about 200 of them. He said, I want, us, I want one of you pastors to have Kelvin in your pulpit on Sunday sharing his testimony. Mm. And for about six months wow. all over Georgia, I was sharing my testimony in somebody's church on a Sunday morning. Mm. 
those congregations bought books and gave me just generous love offerings. Um, it was, I was share, traveling the country uh, sharing my story uh, mm-hmm. in congregations um, about the faithfulness of God. I called the, the testimony was called the blessings of sufferings. And mm-hmm. I was sharing with them how it's not as dark and dreary and heavy as, as I, I thought it would be, you know, it, Jesus's promise is true. His yoke is easy mm-hmm. and his burdens are light. And I was living proof of it, James, that, right. you know, it's uh, got that God is, it's faithful and that Jesus has promised that whatever you lose standing for me, he said, I'll restore it 100 fold in this life. That's and right. so, uh, I'm living proof of that. I right. lost some people that I thought were very close friends, uh, because of my public statement about marriage and sexuality, but I, they have been replaced with a hundred times greater friends than I had and I lost in quantity and quality. You know, so, uh, so often people misinterpret our walk with Christ that somehow that, if we walk with Christ, somehow that's going to be a path of ease. Yes. And, and that's, that's not what it is. No. The, the joy that comes from walking with Christ is that he's with us. Yes. Whether it is a smoother road and this event never takes place and you get to live in your dream job until retirement, or you stand for what's right and, and all, all heck breaks loose, uh, you know, after this point, he is still with you. Yes. And that's where the joy and peace comes. It's from, from the presence of God, yes. not from our circumstances. Absolutely. You know, and, but so often people misinterpret that perspective of faith mm-hmm. and really have a distorted viewpoint. And, and in doing so, they become anemic in their Christianity. They become, you know, like, like a shell of, of what they could be with the spiritual muscle that it takes to really endure faithfully in a world like ours. Oh, absolutely. The job I'm walking in right now is an example of 100 fold. I mean, I, I thought in my limited carnal capacity that the dream for me would be to retire at the end of a long fire service career, sure. have this big retirement party, and then have a pension that I could just live on for the rest of my life. That is so far below. <laughs> if, God, if God would have given me that, I probably would have been satisfied, but God had so much more right. in store for me. I'm currently now the senior vice president of human resources and faith initiative. Check it out for the same law firm that defended and won my case. Yes. And the joy that I have in this capacity is far greater than anything I could have ever experienced in the fire service. So God gave me a 100 fold career that I would not have had if I just bowed down and acquiesced to what was asked. God's plans are so much bigger all we have to do is be faithful. And, right. and, and and I know I say all we have to do, that's where the rub is. I mean, that's where the challenge is, is, yes. is that being faithful uh, in good times and bad, they're, they're challenges. They, yes. just, they just are, you yes. know, particularly in a world right now where a Christian perspective is not viewed as a, as, as positive. Right. And I think that we're going to, we're going to probably see more and more of that in the coming in the coming years. It's frankly one of the biggest reasons why I went into Christian education. I was in uh, public education in Pennsylvania and uh, the, I was teaching, my background is English literature. I was teaching English literature, but at the public school I was teaching also one class on world religion. And uh, so there was a book that I, that I used and worked through all, you know, different world religions. It was part of my course load. And um, it was very interesting. I was teaching a class and I was, I was competing for a program that would pay for my master's. And uh, I had a group that had groups of people in my classroom all the time filming and, and seeing. Anyway, my principal was in there and a couple of teachers, an old professor was in there as part of the evaluation team. I was teaching a piece of literature and one of the students asked me in the class that day, he raised his hand and he said, he said, Mr. Taylor, Mr. Taylor, is this a theme? And th- this was back when they used to level kids. This was a level four. So these kids, these kids were, were you know, the, the, the kids who were maybe challenged academically a little bit, it, it actually was my favorite class, but I'm teaching this class and, and I was just thrilled that he asked the, and used the term theme. I thought it was great. Like yeah. it was, a, that was a success. I said, yes, it was. And I gave a little bit of an answer and he puts his hand back up again. And he said, is this, is this a Christian theme? And it was. And yeah. I said, yes, it, it is a Christian theme. And he put his hand back up for a third time. And I'm thinking, this is the best day ever. You yeah, know? Yeah. And, uh, and he said, is this, a, is this a born again Christian theme? I've heard my grandmother use that phrase, born again. And it wasn't. And I said, no, it isn't. And 
and I answered the question a little bit differently. Uh, I didn't preach. I didn't proclaim. Like I didn't, all I did was answer his question. Yeah. And uh, he shot his hand up one more time. And he said, Mr. Taylor, you seem to know a lot about this. He said, are you a born again Christian? And I said, well, yes, I am. But I said, you know, I know a lot about this also because I also teach a world religious yeah. class here, but my faith is important to me. I didn't proclaim, I didn't say, and you can be saved. From, yeah, yeah. You know, like I didn't get, I didn't do any of that. And afterwards, my building principal came to me and he was like red-faced, vein-poppingly angry at me. And he said, you know, how dare you answer the, the, that you embarrassed us in front of these guests that were here. And I said, whoa, 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 back up. I said, how did I embarrass, like, this is a young man who would have been quitting school. Right. He's in school. He's engaged. He's asking questions. He wasn't doing that for your benefit. He was doing that because he was actually intrigued with the piece of literature we were going right. through. I said, you should be rejoicing. And I said to him, I said, you know, if that kid had asked me a question on Taoism or Sikhism or Buddhism and I had answer, answered him, you would have thought I was enlightened. But because I answered a question on Christianity, you're angry. Yeah. And I said, you know, you talk to the staff a lot about the idea of us being liberal education, but liberal education means means you're going to accept other things. You can't say I'm going to accept everything other than Christianity. Right. And uh, I decided there, I was like, I'm going to do something else in life. I didn't even know what Christian education was. Uh, my girlfriend at the time, fiance, was already working at a Christian school, and I and eventually the Lord brought me there, which was pretty wow. awesome. And that's how I stepped into it. But it's that idea of saying... No, we're going to we're going to stand for what's right. We're going to do right. what's right even when it's a challenge, yes. you know. Um and and uh, so now in in your role here, you get to develop a lot of people. We talk a lot on the show about just the idea of leadership. Um tidbits on leadership. You have been a leader of men for a long time. Uh in some capacities, enormous groups uh, of people that you're responsible for. Any particular leaderships tips on developing leaders for the future uh, that you're using uh, on a pretty regular basis? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things is um, is just modeling the way, you know, just model the behaviors that you expect at others. Uh, it's one of the most simple forms of leadership development. Uh, and just as an example, uh, I learned years ago that um, to really transform organizations, there has to be what I come to the call a leadership culture. Okay. And the leadership culture is uh, that all leaders at every level are five things, that they, they have to be predictable, uh, visible, accessible, approachable, and accountable. Mm. Predictable, James, seems simply means that whatever that organization, that institution's guiding doctrine or philosophy is, the leader has to live it out that right. that followers can predict the conduct and behavior of the leader because the leader lives out the vision, the mission, the core values. The leader, him or herself, actually follows the rules, regulations, policies, and procedures. Uh, so they're predictable in their behavior. You know, there's not a Dr. Jekyll, mm -hmm, Mr. Mm -hmm. Hyde. Right perspective they're consistently the same right. and it's they not can emotional be, right they're consistently right. the same uh it, that's predictable and um visible simply means that uh the leader shows up in meaningful interactions with followers on a meaningful basis that no one have to ever ask the question uh, when the last time we've seen you know fill in the blank our leader or when, this, when was the last time we had a meaningful engagement mm -hmm. uh, with our leader because the leader shows up in strategic uh, and even impromptu opportunities mm -hmm. uh, to really be visible before the people that he or she is leading. Mm -hmm. Approachable simply means that we have to have a disposition. We carry ourselves in such a way that followers feel comfortable approaching us when they have a concern or a need uh, that they feel that the organization or the leader can meet. Uh, accessible means that followers can get to their leader when they need to get to their leader. Uh, in some cases, when leadership at there's in the fire service, there was this philosophy that what happens in the firehouse stays in the firehouse. What went along with that was if a house captain or the fire captain could not meet the need of the follower, Sometimes they felt it was an indictment against their leadership to allow the follower to go a next level above them mm -hmm. to see if that leader could help meet their need. 
Accessible means that if the captain can't meet the need, the captain will take it to the next level. Mm-hmm. And if the next level battalion chief can't meet the need, he will get allow access to the next level. That, that there's this whole uh, idea of the buck doesn't stop with me. We will carry it as far as it needs to go uh, to see if we can support you and meet your needs. So there has to be this concept of being accessible. Uh, and then accountable embraces not just top-down accountability, which is the tradition, right? But it also embraces bottom-up accountability, which means that if I, as a leader, wholeheartedly embrace uh, the philosophy, the doctrine, the rules and policies of what we stand for, not only am I going to hold our followers accountable to those things, I want followers to hold me Mm -hmm. accountable to those things as well. Uh, And then it also embraces horizontal accountability. Horizontal accountability, James, is simply the principle that peers can solve problems at their level if they simply address it with one another as opposed to carrying it up to the next level. Mm -hmm. So those are some things that I believe shapes the leadership culture. They have to be demonstrated by the the leader, of course, but cascades down to all leaders when the leader, when the leader models those things on a regular basis. And each one of those hold biblical precept as well. They all, all of those. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. usually my, my bottom line. Jesus is all of those things. He's predictable, visible, accessible, approachable, and accountable. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I love the fact that throughout your story, God was preparing you for this. I, I love that fact that he has been faithful to you. Uh, you had the opportunity as a young, a young boy to, to, to say, I'm going to do the right thing no matter what, as a young man, as a man, as a leader, as an increasing leader, as a remarkable success at the upper echelons of your career. And that faithfulness has been developed every step of the way through our God. Yes. And, and I also love the fact that God returned your faithfulness with his abiding faithfulness. Yeah. It's such a great lesson for us. And frankly, we need more men and women who are willing to take, take risks with their faith, to do so with kindness and love, uh, but, but to still step into those, those unknowns. Uh, so, Mr. Cochran, it has been such a privilege to have you on the show today. Uh, I love the story. The story of you and your wife is going to ring in my ears forever. Uh, I absolutely love it. And, uh, and I just love the fact that God has really made you a faithful man, but also returned it with faithfulness. Thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you so much. We have been overwhelmed with the glowing response to season one of the Joy of Leadership podcast. Thank you to our faithful listeners for tuning in every week. And thank you for telling your friends. And thank you even more for liking us on YouTube or wherever you receive your podcasts. While we are blessed to have faithful listeners in every section of the U.S., our biggest cities being Atlanta, New York, Seattle, and even Wichita, Kansas, we have been surprised by the global impact of the podcast. We are literally reaching thousands around the world with faithful weekly listeners in Canada, Kenya, the Netherlands, and even Sri Lanka. We are humbled by God's favor on our program as we encourage others to keep Christ in the center. This show could not take place without the expertise and brilliance of our producer, David Bell, and our director, Blake Pace. Boldly lives at the intersection of vocational success and spiritual courage email us at thejoyofleadership at gmail.com. Thank you for being a faithful member of the Joy of Leadership podcast family.